Welcome to the Transit Lounge. I'm your host, Chandra. As a recovering workaholic, I want to explore how you can do more of what you love without burning out. I'm on a mission to promote true well-being, the contented state of being happy, healthy, and prosperous. Through interviews with savvy entrepreneurs, authors, and industry experts, we'll share insights, inspiration, and practical tips on how you can be CEO you in the business of your life. Let's go. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Transit Lounge podcast. And I'm super excited because we are doing another interview episode. And today we're going to be having a conversation to discover more about a fabulous woman named Carol that you'll get to know uh, very shortly and to find out about her significant career change later in life uh, so that you can get some insights about how she did it, why she did it, and you can potentially anticipate some different challenges that inevitably come up when you make a transition from a successful career into working for yourself. So hello, Carol, how are you? Hi, Chandra. I'm great. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to be on your podcast. Oh, great. And just to give everyone who is listening some context, whereabouts are you in the world right now? I'm here in the UK and I live about 50 kilometres north of London. So we're in a a market town that has got lots of beautiful countryside around it. Oh, delightful. But even though we are on opposite ends of the uh, the globe and the day, uh, I am really excited to find out more about your story uh, because I think there's going to be some interesting insights that you'll be able to share that will be really helpful and inspiring for people. So what about if you, you start off by just explaining what is it that you – Uh, used to do and what do you do now? Okay so um, in a former life I I fell into accountancy after I left college. Um, I wanted actually to get into fashion retail buying um, (laughs) but I was unable to get um, a training position and so I ended up on one of my lecturer's suggestions falling into accountancy um, and it was going to be a stopgap, except mm-hmm. it wasn't. And it ended up being my career for many years, 19 years in accountancy, and then um, a little bit more um, accountancy, but more general management then before I made the leap in and bought my second business in 2013. Um, and, and, and what is that business? That business was um, an existing online fashion boutique. So I bought it with no experience in fashion, e-commerce or marketing. Oh, of course you did. It It was obviously a senior moment. (laughs) Right. So, but it took you 19 years to get back to the fashion love. No, it was longer than that. It was ninety. It was nineteen years in pure accountancy, and oh. then, as I said, I moved more into to general, general management. management. Um, and so, no, it was it was um, a lot longer than that. Let's say twenty about, plus years. Yeah, thirty plus years or whatever. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, exactly. And I never actually made it into the fashion world in the first place, but it was all. It had always been my dream to work in fashion. Isn't it interesting um, how sometimes that happens where, you know, you have this calling, this, this, this passion and for whatever yeah. reason you don't go there straight away but somehow mm-hmm. the, the heart or the universe pulls you back somehow to it. Absolutely. Um, but the, the boutique itself was just a stepping stone to what I'm doing now. Oh, so what are you um, doing now? Uh, well, now I'm a personal stylist. I let the boutique go because, to be honest, it was a real it was a really hard thing to make work to mm-hmm. get that stock turn right, to get the marketing right. Um, it was a a big cash drain. Um, and what I actually found was that I was attracting women as I marketed the business offline as much as online. I was attracting women who wanted to talk to me um, about the fact that clothes weren't made for them or they weren't Mm -hmm. right for clothes Mm -hmm. Um, nothing suited them they just didn't know what to buy and it wasn't a case of just simply selling them clothes on the back of that 
it was a case of really listening and understanding that the issues that they were really having were around body confidence. Yeah. And um, and that's that then gave me my light bulb moment of doing a bit more research into body confidence mm -hmm. and discovering just how many women suffer from um, body confidence issues and the numbers of are really scary. I mean, it's over 90%. Yeah. Um, and that can be anything from I'm having a day where I just feel a bit blur. Um, I feel, you know, maybe a bit bloated, just don't like myself very much today. And we all have, you know, occasions where we don't feel great mm. um, through to a full blown eating disorder. And that struck a nerve with me because um, I'd actually battled an eating disorder for over 20 years um, uh. from the point when I was about 17. And to be honest, that's what kind of woke me up to the fact of, hey, hang on, maybe I can help women um, feel more confident about their bodies because I really understand what they mean when they stand there and look in the mirror and see something different from everybody else. Yeah. Oh, Carol, it's there's so much about what you've just shared that I really want to dive into. And sure. you know, I, I'm just I, continually fascinated by the roads that our working lives take us on and how, with hindsight, you can look back and see the thread or the, the clues along the way that have, have led you to be where you are now. Um, I, I find it really fascinating. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Because if, I, if I'm if i honest and I look back now, um, there's no way I could have held down a job in a sort of fast-paced negotiating environment, which is what the fashion industry and the buying in, in, um, role involves mm -hmm. when I was going through the, the major throes of an eating disorder. Yeah. Um, and that's why that kind of back office accounting role was actually something that sat quite comfortably with me even though it wasn't really ever what I wanted to do yeah and it does seem like the accounting it doesn't seem like it's a natural oh well if you're not going to go down this fashion buying <laughs> um, line of course the next natural choice would be accounting like no it, it, it wasn't and it, as I said it was only because I was guided by one of my lecturers who said look I've been offered uh, I've been asked to put a couple of people forward for um, a firm of local accountants um, and I'd like to recommend you and I think there was a flattery element there that said oh okay I'll go along for the interview yes and then it was kind of uh, well all right I may as well do it and at the end of the day accountancy <laughs> was going to be such a good background for whatever I went on to do because if you understand numbers and you understand how uh, a business works from a numbers point of view then that's a great foundation for whatever you go on to do. That is very true it is probably uh, when you look at a general skill set that is going to help in running any business accounting is probably one of them and marketing is another uh, but you know it is as a foundational skill I, I can see that um, so you know it's interesting how those roads happen so what was it that led you to decide to buy the store in the first place did you get to a certain point either in life like a milestone birthday or did something happen that made you think you know what stuff it I'm I'm done with this accounting and then general management work I want to do something that's around fashion again or how did that come about it came about because the I'd got into um, the video games industry and um, Carol you are the most fascinating <laughs> hilarious person I have spoken to in a while Game, what? How are you? What's the gaming thing? Okay, so the gaming thing is where I got into more general management. So uh, in 2007, I, I went to work for a, um, a business that um, when we started, there were just three of us around the kitchen table. Um, and we were designing and developing accessories or peripherals for PlayStation and Xbox. Okay. So, um, so there was the guy who was the designer, very talented guy. There was the guy who'd set the company up, who was the MD and UK sales guy. And then there was me. So you can imagine how many hats I wore yes. in that business as we grew the business. Um, and it was amazing. It was fun. It was um, it was so good to be at the be at the beginning of a business like that and 
be part of it growing. Mm. Um, but it it got to a stage where um, I guess what the MD wanted and what a lot of us wanted weren't quite in the same trajectory. Mm-hmm. And I was starting to get to the point where I was just, I was fed up of um, working for somebody else and putting in an awful lot of hours. Yeah. Um, and it not being mine at the end of the day, even though I was a shareholder. Yeah. Um, and as I said, buying the boutique was actually my second business. I'd had my first business back in the 1990s, mm-hmm. where at the point I'd been told that I couldn't have children, which was in 91. Um, I started my first business, which was a management accountancy um, and bookkeeping outsourcing business mm-hmm. um and um I decided that that I didn't need a baby because the business was my baby right um so I was very much in denial about what was going on with my body mm-hmm. um and threw myself into the business and at the same time I um I forgot about my husband um until we came to a crunch time at the millennium um, and it was either that business or my marriage. And at that stage, I chose my marriage. It was more important. Yeah. And um, and that's when I gave that business up and then went back into um, into accountancy and then moved into into more general management. Um, so I guess where I'm going with it was that I'd already had the experience of running my first business. So when I was starting to get really fed up with um, what was going on in the company I was working for in the video games industry, that's what started me looking around for what are, what am I going to do? Because I'm not going to spend the rest of my life working for somebody else. I want to do something that is fulfilling me rather than something mm-hmm. that is totally stressing me out. Mm. And as you said, you know, when you get to that point where you're someone that is a a worker who really enjoys Mm. work life, that challenge of, you know, putting all the time and effort in and it not ultimately being your own and being answerable to someone who, especially when they, you know, whether it's a values conflict or a vision um, disparity of where they see things going and where you see things going, I think there there can come a point where, you just need to make that decision of going, I want to do my own thing and I want to know that the effort and energy that and passion that I put into what I do for work is actually going to be a benefit for me, not just to somebody else who at the end of the day, if I left, they'll just hire somebody else. Exactly. Um, and to be honest, it wasn't, I wasn't, setting out on the route to naturally look for um, a fashion business at that stage. I was just so keen to get out that I was going on websites um, and looking for businesses for sale, Mm -hmm. um, stuff like that. And, but it was the fashion business that I saw for sale that attracted me. And then I thought, Oh, okay, this does sound like something I could, um, I could make work. But at the end of the day, um, it was something that was very, very difficult to make work. Mm. Um, um, but I don't regret it because it was a stepping stone. Yes. And as you've said, and we can sort of loop back into that now, that that business actually showed you a couple of things. One, this real market need that existed and an opportunity for you to really bring your personal experience and expertise in a way that can really help that need. So, you know, I'm a big believer that, you know, there's no real mistakes as long as that you extract a a lesson or a learning from it. Everything kind of is sort of almost setting you up to be equipped with what you need to be equipped with to see the opportunity that's the right next thing for you. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, And I just wouldn't have met some of the people that I know now if I hadn't gone that route. Um, and yes, I, I'm not sure I'd have had that realization working for somebody else. Oh, mm. guess what? I'll train as a personal stylist. Yes. <laughs> I just, I just don't think I'd have joined the dots. Although looking at your past uh, history, who knows? You could have got there anyway through a different tangent. But you know, this is the way the path that that got you here. Yeah. So when you moved into the styling side of things. How did you make that transition? Was that a service you started offering while you still had the store or did you sort of close that down and then start uh, on the new styling road? 
I, I did at first offer the two of them because my original plan had been, well, if I've trained as a personal stylist, um, I can then take people through the styling process and then sell them the clothes that I've got um, from the stock that I've accumulated. Mm-hmm. But what didn't work with that plan was that women I was attracting for styling weren't right for the clothes that I got in stock. And I certainly wasn't going to add to that um, stockpile. Yes. Um, uh, and I wasn't going to compromise my principles by styling them and then recommending something that wouldn't work for them. So in the end, I literally just offloaded the, the stock that I got and it actually it actually ended up going to charity. So at least it did do some good. Yeah, and great. And what I love is that, you know, there's a real sense of integrity coming through with the approach that you've taken here. It doesn't look or sound like you were just wanting to go, hey, this is my new... Uh, career I'm a stylist and I'm going to just flog off the clothes that I've got but you really started to see the deeper uh, concern or question that women were were trying to answer through finding clothes for them and that required you to really not be just trying to I've got this thing I want to sell instead it was like how do I really serve this person you're absolutely right and I I I work by that, you know, that integrity is a key part of my personal values. Mm. Um, And I wouldn't sleep at night if I was just using it, uh, using the the styling as a tool to sell clothes that didn't work for them. It just it wouldn't sit well with me. And I I don't think I could actually carry it off, if I'm honest, because I'm um, I'm actually one of those people that in a sense is is too honest. (laughs) Um, And it, it, it did in sort of very early in my career It actually cost me a couple of promotions because I'm just I can't live with myself I I have to be brutally honest yeah and look I'm I'm a fan I created this um philosophy called zero filter years ago which is just you know cut through the bullshit tell me what you really think and from there we can move forward and and sometimes you know people are open to the zero filter and sometimes they're not so but you know it's uh, there can be um the the good and bad of as you say being brutally honest so when you started offering this styling service, how did people around you react to this as the new direction? Were people generally supportive? Were they surprised? Were they like, oh, of course, this is what you'd be doing? How did people react? I think it, it was interesting, actually, because I think it, it, it was a journey that evolved and I think people were generally very receptive. I'd mm-hmm. started um, to do a lot of networking by then, um, face-to-face networking um, and, you know, explaining what I was up to in that sense and explaining it from the concept of helping women with their confidence mm-hmm. um, rather than helping them to find clothes that suited them was the angle that I took and is the angle that I take now mm-hmm. um, because I've actually um, in 2018 I certainly st- started I was researching for a blog and um, that I was writing and it was uh, I think it was something like the environmental cost of your wardrobe mm-hmm. and it really woke me up to how bad the fashion industry is for the planet yeah um, it's the second most polluting industry in the world and um and so therefore for me it was very much about okay how can I help women become more confident but also use the clothes that they've got um more effectively because many of us have got far too many clothes um rather than simply going and accumulating more so my personal styling is very much based on let's help you feel good every time you get dressed but let's do it with the clothes in your wardrobe let's see how we can style those and make you look and feel fabulous yes and I really love that you've kind of aligned these two uh, different passions into the way that you operate now Um, and I remember seeing I think it was a TED talk where the woman presenting was talking about um, you know the capsule wardrobe and there was some reference made to the difference between uh, and you will probably have way more of an insight on this than I do, but my memory of it was that what an average French woman's wardrobe contains compared to an American or a Western wardrobe and how in movies 
that can be seen that in American or Western movies, the lead characters very rarely would be seen wearing the same thing twice. Whereas um, in French movies, you would get more repetition because of the way that they style. They wear this, you know, perhaps the same skirt but with a different top or a scarf or different shoes and they're actually making those pieces work for the season and work in many different ways. And that really I got very fascinated with that idea and I think I am one of those women that probably has way too many clothes because I'm always hunting to try and find, you know, the things that really work for me. So I I think it's a... It's a very common problem that I think a lot of women would love to to solve. Yeah, well, it's the the maxim that, or the the thing that's most commonly quoted is that we wear twenty um, percent of our wardrobes eighty percent of the time. Yeah, and it is so true, and uh, so and depressing. It it is depressing. Well, yeah, you think absolutely. about all the money that you wasted, and then all the pollution, like every, the whole lot of yeah. it is just like oh, just such a waste. Yeah. And then what happens to it afterwards as well? I yeah, mean, we could we could do a whole podcast on that one, Chandra. Mm. Um, but the 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 you're right. I mean, the point is that it's um, the French do have a different attitude to it because they have a different attitude very much in terms of consumption mm-hmm. as well. Right. Whereas the um, the American and the way that we've modelled in, in the UK and I think also probably in Australia, we've modelled ourselves a little bit on on that American model is about, you know, you, you kind of you have that wealth through uh, and materialism and through consumption mm. and you, you kind of a bit like a peacock that you show off your wealth by the more um, stuff that you accumulate. Yes, yes. Oh, that's probably a whole other podcast episode too. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> but to get back to, so you, you, as you're making the the transition and and where you're at now in the business, what are some of the challenges that you think that you came across with moving into this version of of the business that you offer now? Well, the first thing is I should have. Um... I think it would have been better if I'd started, I'd let the boutique go straight away okay. and um, started a brand new website and identity straight away. Um, I think that would have been a better way of doing it. But I kind of, I had this hybrid going on, if you like, which yeah. was, I still had the clothes up for sale. I was offering styling services and it was a little bit of a hodgepodge. Whereas I think had I aligned better um, immediately with the styling services, I think that would have been a, easier for people to get. I yeah, I totally can, and I really can relate because, as a Gemini, I uh, <laughs> can can sometimes be very excited about all the ideas and all the shiny things, and you know, not realise that in wanting to or trying to deliver too many different things that actually it confuses people. And so I think it's really common for uh, women when they're starting out in something or or they've got a new idea, a new direction, the fear of letting go of the old thing. So they hang on to that. And and it actually, it's counterintuitive, but actually so much more powerful when you can almost just double down on here is my offering and here's who it's for and your marketing and everything becomes so much clearer when you can have that single-minded focus. That is so true. But, again, that's the benefit of hindsight. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I also think I would have benefited more had I um, invested in a coach earlier on as well. Right. and help me to get that alignment, get that as as opposed to trying to think it through on my own and do different bits of programs and stuff like that. I mm. think it would have, I think I would have benefited more. But it it was as much. It wasn't just about the investment. It was also about I'm not sure who it is that I feel really aligned to wanting to work with mm. as well. Such a good point. And and I had a conversation with someone just earlier today around that similar question. And, you know, what she was saying was that, you know, she she didn't know what she didn't know to know who could help her. And my observation is that she got stuck in a trap 
of consuming the free stuff. There is so much free information out there, but it becomes a hodgepodge and it becomes overwhelming that you don't know where to start and you don't implement anything. And so I think that, again, although it can seem counterintuitive, to find your right person and work with them as a collaborative partner to guide you and direct you and have that external perspective, I think can be invaluable. But for people when they're first starting out, it can be a question of, well, I, I, I should be able to just figure this out by myself. But, you know, what, yeah. what do you think about that? Oh, I totally agree with you. And I think two things on that one, because, um, you know, I've been in business for a number of years. Um, I'd had my first business. Um, I really thought that kind of probably I knew what I was doing. And yes, I should be able to figure this rubbish out. No, I'm not rubbish. <laughs> rubbish is the wrong word. But I should be able to finish this, figure this stuff out for myself, mm. um, I think was a is a really good point because um, I'm also extremely stubborn and tenacious as well. So <laughs> from that point of view, there was also that kind of why should I be paying someone to do what I believe I can do myself or yeah. should be able, yeah. or, or again should be able to do myself. Mm-hmm. And it is, I think, particularly for those high achiever types that you know are used to being successful in their work and figuring things out. That when it becomes a whole new ball game of of setting up and starting and, and growing a business, we don't necessarily acknowledge it as well as we we could around the fact that it does require some very different skill set that you're not expected to just miraculously know. So I feel like it is, and perhaps everyone has their own journey around that and and their um, approach to it. But it's definitely something that seems to be a common theme through this interview series that I've been doing around one of the things that, that people have said you know, regularly is about asking for help earlier, getting a coach or being part of some kind of uh, coach training group or mastermind or something so that they are having that external perspective and someone who um, can you know, guide them and support them. On that note, do you have other people in your either your family or your friend or your community who were business owners or are they mostly employed people in your life? I suppose in my community, no, an awful lot of business owners because, as I say, I was out networking an awful lot. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. um, I was certainly coming into contact with an awful lot of people. So in that sense, I was getting tips and advice, albeit, as you say, the overwhelming free stuff to a degree. And I was doing some paid programs as well. And I think one of the best things that I did do was um, a four month mastermind program that really helped me. Um, And then there was, I also did a program, it wasn't really a program, it was we had a, we set up a peer group, three of us, um, who were in in business together at very different stages of our business which is probably why it didn't quite work um where we were supporting each other but at least we were able to bring our issues to take a group of trusted people yeah that we talked to who were in business and get a different perspective on it because sometimes it can just be getting that different perspective yes um, that is so important mm yeah for sure for sure and for you with being in business now are you doing that as a one-to-one service or is it workshops or how does that the business model work well the business model has changed a lot since the end of March (laughs) as it does well yes when when the world changes uh sometimes businesses have to pivot as well so so what is it looking like now Okay, so um, before we went into um, into lockdown, then I would say that about 90% of my business was done as a one-to-one service, but mm-hmm. I was already starting to offer online courses, so on a one-to-many. Yep. Um, and rather than go ahead and develop more online courses – what I decided was that in order to replace the one-to-one work, I would actually bring those services online. Um, and so I've, I've pivoted in the sense that I now offer a, a new service that I wasn't offering before, which is um, very relevant to the situation we're 
we're finding ourselves in, which is um, a short consultation with me to um, how to look awesome on video calls. Yeah, great. Because I see so many people on video calls where I just think if you were got the lighting slightly differently if you got the colors you were wearing the accessories you were wearing your makeup all of those kind of small bits and pieces that we don't necessarily think about because we're too focused on the video call Mm -hmm. um and um now with um reports the got there was a Gartner survey done recently that said that 86% of job interviews are now being done as online interviews um there's going to be an awful lot of job seekers out there yes. who um are going to need some help and encouragement um to look really good you know in, in a crowded job or in crowded um candidates market yes um for um a limited number of jobs so I'm offering that service, but the the kind of the missing link, if you like, was how do I do um, color analysis online? Yes. Um, and I've watched a number of people um, do the type of do color analysis online, and I've always thought I'm not sure that that works. Um, but um, the lady who I went to for training for my original style training um, announced that she cracked it. And um, so I'm super excited because I did the training with her just a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And it now means that I can bring the rest of my um, services um, online Fantastic. Uh, and be able to offer a full suite of styling services now online. Very, very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And so can I ask for you, and it is a personal question, but I, I am asking it through this interview series because I think it's an important one and it's around money and how money plays out in women making the decision to start their own thing. And sometimes it's the money factor is I'm used to earning this big reliable salary and now I'm going to be doing my own thing and I'm not sure I can earn the same amount of money. And so sometimes it's that front-end concern around money. And for other people, it kicks in when they have to actually charge for their services and look at their rates and you know, if people don't pay on time, following up on things like that. So the, the money thing is not a one-time deal. It follows you all the way through. But for you, how have you had or handled the money side of things in that transition? That's such a good question. Um, When I had my first business, just take it back to the 1990s, um, just for a second, is I had um, year-on-year growth. I was employing people and the business grew um, almost on a linear basis. Mm. It probably was linear, actually. And so I didn't even really have to think about the money side of it. Yeah, right. Um, so it was a very, it was a, a, I won't say a culture shock. It was just different when I set this business up. Um, obviously, taking the boutique aside because that didn't make money. Um, and I think it probably, it held me back from making that leap a little bit from the comfortable salary to um, to starting up on my own. Mm. Was that kind of... Uh, things things are good now, and I can put um, money aside, and you know it, it's I don't have to think about money. But at the end of the day, it was to do with fulfilment, yeah, and it was to do with happiness, and it was also to do with my health as well, because I was getting so stressed in my corporate life that quality of life wasn't there either. Yeah, um, you know it would be Saturday lunchtime before I'd sat, I'd kind of wound down from the end of the week. And then by Sunday afternoon, I was starting to get that anxiety about the week starting again on Monday. Yeah. And that's no way to live. Yeah. Um, and so in that sense, it was kind of, well, OK, let's put that to one side. My husband and I, I mean, we've been married now nearly 39 years and we've always been very open and able to talk about things like that. And we just we came up with a plan that worked from that point of view mm-hmm. and didn't put any pressure on me to immediately start making money. Yeah. So that helped an awful lot. But to take it to the next level about charging, yes, I think certainly, and again, another lesson learned that was when I started off, um, I was almost 
apologetic for charging people. Yes. And yes. I think that I think that was partly because I'd moved into a new field mm-hmm. um, that was so alien from what I was doing before. Whereas when I had my first business in accountancy, it was using my expertise. So charging wasn't to me wasn't an issue. Yeah. So there was a different mindset in that. But as it is, I also started to recognize quite early on that people don't value it, uh, your services or your expertise, if you don't charge yes. enough money. Yep. Um, and so now I, I have the view that I will charge what I believe um, my services are worth. And if people believe they're too expensive, then I don't get into that quandary that I got in got to in the first place of, oh, um, can I do it? Mm, what can I do about this? I, I accept the fact that they're probably just not my ideal client anyway. Yeah. And look, Carol, thank you so much for sharing that perspective because I think what you've shared is really valuable and on so many levels. One is sometimes what happens is when you've been used to a healthy six-figure salary as an employee – Sometimes you just kind of go, well, I don't really ever think about money. Money's going to be fine. And so you don't put the thinking into it when you go into business. You just kind of assume, oh, well, you know, this is a great idea and people will pay for it and off we go. And (laughs) so it can be a bit of a a shock to the system when suddenly it's like, oh, you know, hang on, where are my clients coming from and and how much am I going to charge for these things? And and then the actual conversation of, of telling someone and, you know, your story of, being a bit apologetic is very yeah. common as well it's this it's like we somehow delete all of the the past years of experience that we have that we yeah. are still bringing into a new offering even though it might be in a very different field you're still bringing all of that expertise and life experience and personality and energy to it but it's like we delete everything and and have to start from zero again so it's really important to kind of be aware of some of those mindset games that can kick in uh, and then your insight around realising when you do, you know, do things for free, particularly if you're doing it for free on an ongoing basis or without a strategy around it being free in exchange for testimonial or feedback or building your list or whatever it might be, what actually happens is you tend to create a nightmare for yourself that when you give something for free, people don't value it. They don't show up in the same way as they would if they had paid money for it. Uh, You end up being a bit resentful potentially, whether you admit it or not, because you're feeling like you're delivering all this value and they're not really coming to the party. And so it's just this whole complex mess that doesn't set things up well. Uh, And so I really encourage people to see that actually when you do something for free it devalues what you are providing and it also holds that person back potentially from getting the breakthrough that they need which they will only get if they actually invest yeah I just had a bit of a rant there didn't I (laughs) no but it's it's so true and I think the 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 one of the points that you touched on, which I think is so important, is the fact that you will start resenting mm. the fact you're not charging enough yeah, and that you're working for nothing. And that will come across in the energy. Yes. And if you haven't got the right energy, then you're not going to deliver a great service to your client anyway. No, it's just so, the law of exchange when it's out of whack like that. It's just it doesn't ultimately help anyone um, you know, which is not to say that you should, you know, come straight out of the gates and, and, and charge, you know, what the industry leader is charging straight away necessarily. You might start low and then have a strategy around increasing your prices. But again, it's about having pricing strategies, not just kind of devaluing what you're offering. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. And that's what I've effectively what I've done over the years is is um, started off low on the basis that I didn't feel comfortable charging a huge amount of money um, because again I was new to the industry but mm-hmm. I still needed to um, to get clients and um, to make some money and then I have gradually brought those bought my prices up because yeah. it's and that feels great yeah that I've done that yeah um, and it feels in alignment and yeah. that's 
uh, and that's the most important aspect that I feel comfortable that what people are getting is good value, but it's not, uh, I'm not selling myself short. Totally. And, and I'm not suggesting that that's an easy um, sweet spot to find straight away. Uh, yeah. However, I just, you know, I think it's a really valuable part of the conversation for people to be thinking about their um, pricing strategies and um, the mindset around when you're a, a business owner compared to an employee and you need to kind of upgrade any, you know, software that's perhaps a story running that's not helping you to charge what you're worth. So I think, you know, the money conversation is a big one that I'll continue probably to keep banging on about. <laughs> I, I think it's important because I think we saw a great example of it at the beginning of lockdown as well, mm -hmm. um, because there are an awful lot of people out there who were um, starting to give away stuff free of charge yeah. uh, because they didn't feel that they could charge in the current situation. Mm. And then other people who were charging were, I saw some horrible posts on social media about um, with people basically bullying them and saying, what on earth are you doing charging for things at the moment and asking for money? And <sighs> to my mind, that was totally wrong. Yeah. Um, apart from anything else, we went through um, a period of uncertainty of not knowing, particularly in the UK, what our government was going to offer people in terms of some kind of um, financial um, uh, compensation. Mm -hmm. um, and so therefore, those people still uh, who's self-employed still had to um, pay their rent, pay their mortgage, yeah. um, put food on the table. Um, and again, it comes down to that if they weren't charging um, anything for their service, they were devaluing their service. Yeah. But the other thing is that people were therefore making up stories as well in their own heads and other people's heads that nobody had any money and yeah. that wasn't actually the case. No. And this is what I find so fascinating is about those the money stories that people have and money programming that we we all grow up with, you know, absorbing money stories from our upbringing, from our family, our schooling, our culture, and we don't realize how they play out until potentially some kind of, you know, one of these pressure points where, you know, those inner beliefs about money and whether there's enough and who has it and when you do have it, what does that mean about you? And that's where these kinds of, you know, nasty elements can come out. Because for me, when I look back on it, I that story of like nobody's got any money and nobody's spending was just not what I observed at all. I do think that people that handled it well were mindful of their language in what they were doing, in acknowledging, yeah. you know, what was happening in the world. However, I invested in three different online training programs that were significant dollar investment for me. Even yeah. though for me, more than 50% of my income literally kind of went away overnight. And so my own <laughs> case study, you know, told me that actually that when you've got the right product or service in front of the right person, they will make the decision to invest in it or not. And to hold that back from somebody is not helping at all. Whereas for me, it was like, well, I'm actually, you know, investing in, keeping the economy going uh, and so I think yeah. that is that money story of what you make things mean that can really hold you back or propel you forward to keep you know earning more because of how you are relating to to money yeah it's so true mm. it's an, again whole nother podcast Carol we might need a whole <laughs> podcast series of our own <laughs> be great i yeah. love talking to you well i love the fact that you've you've really looked at the current situation and been able to see uh, new opportunities to replace some of the old way of operating that isn't as available for you now uh, and i'm excited to see you know where that goes for you especially this new element of uh, online interviews i totally agree like what what do people have to do now differently in order to cut through amongst that sea of, of interviewees to be memorable. So I think there's going to be some really great things to come from that. So I'm excited to see where that goes. But if people want to find out more about you, they want to connect with you, find out about your services, um, where will they find you? 
They find me on my website is the best place to start looking, mm-hmm. which is um, carolahanson.com. And my social media feeds and everything, um, links to my social media are all on there. Fantastic. And I'll make sure to include a link to your website on the show notes so people can just click it and come straight to you and find you there and find out more. Um, Carol, anything that is occurring to you that we haven't covered yet that you think either that you would have liked to have known earlier or that if someone's listening and they're early in that process of transitioning from a career into to doing their own thing, any final thoughts or tips that you'd like to leave us with? The only thing I would say is um, put your big pants on and ask <laughs> help. Um, because there are a lot of people out there who are willing to help keep your um, and keep listening and watching, gleaning as much information as you can um, and do as much research as you possibly can before you start your own business. Mm-hmm. Um, that I would always say. Um, what sort of research do you think is important for women to do before they go down a business path? Um, is there a market? Mm-hmm. might be um who are your competitors if you do set up in business mm-hmm. um and think about how you can make yourself different what is it that you can create as that point of difference yeah and really think about who are you actually pitching to because i certainly went down that mistake of thinking that i was marketing to everybody when in fact that meant i was marketing to nobody yeah um and um it is a big mistake to make because it means that you're not you're talking to thin air yeah um and i resisted it for an awful long time and then as soon as i did start to, talking to my ideal client um and discovering who my ideal client was um that made it so much easier for me yeah and again it's it's that counterintuitive thing that you think well i want to keep things broad because then yeah. i'll 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 get more people but actually you don't because you don't cut through so i think that's a really key takeaway for for people to um to to note down around how can you differentiate from others that perhaps are doing something similar to you without letting it stop you because that the kind of imposter syndrome of oh there's already so many other stylists out there why does the world need another one and you know we've all had that voice pop into our head but to go in with your eyes wide open about you know what's out there and think through the lens of a customer what would make what you do different or perfect for them uh, I think are really invaluable um, tips for people to be considering if they're exploring a business idea. Yeah, and also I, I guess the other thing I would add is, um, and I would, wouldn't I, is that what you start off doing might not be what you end up doing. <laughs> That's a gem because, again, I think sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves of thinking I've got to come up with the perfect perfect idea and and the perfect business and this is the thing I'm going to do for the rest of my life and we just put so much pressure on ourselves when the reality is we don't know and so that's even more reason don't flaff about for too long before you get started don't try and build the perfect website and all of those things that we sometimes tell ourselves that we need to have perfect before we get started because the reality is it's probably going to change so know that Absolutely. that's likely to happen and, and uh, just, just get started. Well, I think the, um, certainly the current situation with the, with the global pandemic has showed us that, in fact, you know, we do have to be nimble. We do have to be flexible. Yeah. And there, it may be that, you know, you haven't got it quite right, but it may also be that external factors come along that mean that you do have to change. Mm-hmm. And the businesses that are set up to be responsive to market changes or internal changes or lifestyle change, any of the you know inevitable changes that are going to come um, are the ones that seem to survive and, and thrive. So I think that's a really um, a great little uh, tip for people to take out too. Carol, thank you so much for taking time out of your day today to be talking with us and sharing your uh, very 
eventful journey of your professional life and I really do um, wish you all the best with this new direction that you're uh, refining into given the current situation and I look forward to seeing how that goes for you. Thanks very much Chandra it's been an absolute pleasure being on your podcast I really appreciate it and wish you all the best with the, um, the rest of the series. Thanks Carol. So that's it for another episode of the Transit Lounge podcast. But if you are at a point where you have an idea and you feel like the next phase of your work life is going to be you working for yourself, then one of the first things that you really, really need to get sorted is the money side of things. And I'm not just talking about figuring out how much money it's going to cost you to get a logo or and a website done. I'm talking about you and how you handle the money side of your work and life. And to get you started on that, one of the things that you need to know is that there are actually five money zones. And these are five aspects of your life that influence how you think, feel and act around and with money, how much you earn what you do with the money that you earn, how it helps you or holds you back. There's a whole relationship that you have with money. So if you're going to create a successful, thriving business that gives you the sort of freedom and lifestyle that you want to enjoy, then you really need to know what the five money zones are and which one of the five zones you need to work on first based on your unique situation in order to have the biggest positive impact on how much money you earn and keep. And you can discover all about the money zones right now in an easy five minute money breakthrough quiz that I've created that you can get your hands on right now at thetransitlounge.com forward slash money quiz. I'll put a link in the show notes for you as well, but it's thetransitlounge.com forward slash money quiz. And I really do encourage you to go and check it out because if you can get your money side of things sorted, then trust me, everything else becomes so much easier for you to start and grow your own business. When you don't have the money side sorted, it tends to be the fastest handbrake to your creativity and your business growth. So go do that now. You've got nothing to lose. Go do the quiz, figure out your money zones and go have a great week. See you next week.